your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. While the kids are finding the bingo pictures, I'd like to remind you uh, of what we read last week uh, as it relates to, uh, to this week's message. The church, you might recall, was coming together to discuss something important. And that, that important subject was whether Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians. In other words, whether they would need the men to be circumcised and for all the converts then to follow the law of Moses. And to clarify, there are some things in the Old Testament law that carry over into the New Testament, because, and the New Testament will mention those things, uh, because they are moral, part of God's moral law as opposed to ceremonial or sacrificial. But those things are mentioned either by Christ himself in the Gospels or else through the apostolic teachings that we have. So just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Christians are no longer under the law of Moses, and Christians never have been, okay? Since Jesus fulfilled it, since our righteousness comes by faith, we are, we are though, we're beholden to what Paul called the law of love, and that we are obligated to live by it, but we're not saved by it. That's a really important distinction, okay? We are obligated to live out the law of love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, but you are not saved by it. Okay? Your salvation, your justification is by God's grace through faith. So Jesus did say we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And again, the law of Moses was perfectly followed by Jesus, not just in the letter, but also in the spirit of the law. So because God put our sins on Jesus, Scripture says the debt against us, this debt that we earned by disobeying the law, that was nailed to a tree. We don't know it anymore. We don't know it any longer. So, so to sum all of this up, then, Scripture says that no one has ever been made righteous by following the law. And thus, as Peter said, there is no need for Gentile Christians to bear that yoke, so to speak. And since even the, the Jews couldn't, why impose it on the Gentiles, as Peter said? Uh, anyway, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, uh, they, they determined, they agreed together that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised and did not need to follow Mosaic law in order to be Christians. But they did give a short list of four things that the Gentiles were supposed to stay away from. And these four things were in the speech that we ended on last time. You may remember uh, by James, uh, who was one of the pillars of the church, uh, likely the brother or half-brother of Christ. Um, And those four things show up again in today's passage. So so we're going to pray, and then we're going to pick up where we left off. So if you'd bow with me. Father God, I pray right now um, for those that are here, for those that are watching uh, online and perhaps listening later in the week. I ask, Father, that... Each of us, our hearts are good soil. I pray, Father, that the seed that is planted will take root and bear fruit. And I ask, Father, that we will, uh, will humbly receive what, uh, what you give us today. And God, I, I, I know that your word uh, is completely reliable. And, uh, and I, as a human being, as a, as a fallen man, am not. But I pray, Lord, that you speak through me this morning and that people uh, are able to gain the truth that you want them uh, to glean from your word and, and, and help us, Lord, um, all of us not to get in the way of that. I pray that I don't get in the way of anyone hearing the truth. I pray that no one allows their own um, 
their own opinions or their own um, perspective to get in the way of truth. We ask that you make us receptive vessels. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Acts 15, starting in verse 22. uh, It says, this is Luke writing, remember, Luke wrote Acts as well as his gospel. Uh, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. You remember why Antioch? Does anybody remember why they're going to Antioch? That's where all this hubbub started. You remember there there were some guys from Jerusalem who showed up and they were insisting that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved, they said, if you remember this. And that's why Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem. They had to get this issue settled. And so now the church in Jerusalem is, is sending some guys back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to show that everyone is now on the same page. So they sent Judas called Barsabbas. And Silas, he becomes a really important figure later, actually, in the next chapter, uh, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And this is the letter that was written um, by the, probably James, but by all the apostles and elders together. They, they, they wrote this letter so that it would not just be, um, you know, the word of mouth coming on. So, uh, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. I want you to notice, guys, that it doesn't say from the Pope in Jerusalem, okay? And there's, there's no posturing here. Uh, they do mention that the, the letters from the apostles and the, and the elders, but they're also brothers, right? Writing a letter to other brothers. It doesn't matter that they're Jews and these other guys aren't. They're all Brothers, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, okay, I want to just pause on that just for a minute, okay? It's really important for us to notice the Judaizers, these, these guys that were telling everybody that you had to be circumcised to be saved, they came from Jerusalem, but they were not sanctioned by the church in Jerusalem, okay? They were speaking on their own accord, and, and anyone who bought into their line of thinking and went along with it, those people uh, were being led astray, and that's kind of scary. You know, these, these Judaizers had good intentions, probably, but good intentions don't prevent people from damaging other people's faith if they're teaching a false gospel. So be on your guard. Remember, the gospel is about Jesus Christ, about His death and resurrection. And how he paid for our sins. Don't don't be misled. Don't allow false teachers to trouble you with words. Anyway, so the letter identifies the problem. It's these false teachers. And then it continues. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful. Um, And and let's just unpack it real quick. the apostles and elders said they were of one accord, uh, meaning they all drove a Honda. And, no, I'm kidding. They were, they were in agreement about sending Paul and Barnabas back to the Gentiles at Antioch, along with some other Christians from Jerusalem, and the letter. Now, why, why the letter? Because they want to make sure that the church at Antioch understood this was an apostolic decision. It wasn't just something that Paul and Barnabas themselves decided. This was the whole church that were in agreement on this issue. 
They're, they're putting the bona fides out there, so to speak. So there's no question that this was legitimate. Um, you know, they probably understood that this false teaching had gotten some traction, and it was scaring people. I mean, imagine, imagine you've been saved, okay, by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, and your whole life has changed, and now you're a part of this thriving Christian community, and then all of a sudden you're told that to be really saved, you've got to undergo a pretty significant surgery and obey a bunch of laws that you've never heard before. I mean, imagine that. And, and, and to which this law, you have no cultural connection whatsoever. I mean, it would be unsettling, right, to say the least. So the church in Jerusalem wants to make sure the Gentiles understand they are not required to be Jews. And so to do that, they sent several witnesses, right, to, to, to that decision so they could share this truth. Uh, reading on, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, uh, the, the same as what's in this letter. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit... And that's important because they need to understand this is from God. This is not some arbitrary decision that's made by a council of men. Okay, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. See you later. <laughs> Farewell. Okay, goodbye. Well, I mean, okay. You know, compared to the 600 plus laws of the, of, of the Mosaic Covenant, this is probably a bit less stressful, don't you think? I mean, last week we spent a little time looking at these four things. I want to go over them again before we get into the theme of Christian freedom because they do appear to have different levels of importance. Okay, so let's see them again. We got meat sacrificed to idols. You might remember that, uh, that this was what James said in his, his speech. He referred to it as things polluted by idols. But we see here that he was specifically meaning meat that had been sacrificed to these, these false pagan gods. Eating strangled animals and drinking or, or otherwise ingesting animal blood is the second thing. And then sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneos. Okay, according to, to Strong's Concordance, this means harlotry, including... Uh, incest and adultery, fornication. So by that definition, any kind of sex outside of a marriage relationship between one man and a woman would be considered sexual immorality. One man, one woman in marriage, that is not sexual immorality. Outside of that, sexual immorality, okay? We'll come back to that. Um, last Sunday, we talked about this command to abstain from meat that have been offered to idols. Apparently, this is a really common practice in the Gentile world because they had so many false gods, right? You know, they worshipped all these different characters. And so a lot of the animals uh, that were, were butchered were ceremonially dedicated to a false god first. And that was, that was a big-time problem for the Jewish Christians. They, they had always known, okay, that there was only one god. And anything... If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that anything that's connected to, in any way to an idol, that, that was verboten. It was, it was taboo, okay? In the Old Testament, whenever Israel wiped out their enemies, God instructed them to break and burn the idols. And if they were made of a precious metal, He would instruct them to melt it down because idols are a terrible, 
offense to him, and they're a terrible distraction to his people too, right? Therefore, anything offered to an idol would be considered by a Jew to be a similar affront to God. Last week, we looked at a uh, pretty lengthy passage from 1 Corinthians 10 to help us understand that this part of the instruction about, about not eating meat offered to idols was not binding to the same degree as the others. And we're not going to read that whole section again. Uh, if, you, if you missed it last week, you can watch it. It's online. You can see the, the rest of this in context. Um, but starting in verse 25, Paul wrote, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, and this is his reasoning, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So, so what he's saying here is, if you don't know one way or the other, don't be legalistic about whether you're eating meat that's been offered to an idol because that in itself isn't a sin. In this particular case, he's saying what you don't know won't hurt you. Kind of an unusual thing to read in Scripture. Okay, So the instruction here in Acts 15 to avoid meat offered to idols was apparently a concession for the sake of not offending Jewish Christians, and it was later clarified by Paul to be non-binding. Now, the difference between a concession and a hard command is easy to define, but to understand it and practice, that, that's harder to wrap our brains around, right? But I promise we will come back to it. For now, though, um, we're going to keep going. What about eating animals that have been strangled and so the blood is still in the meat? Or what about drinking the blood of sacrifices, which was a pretty common pagan practice? And lots of their, their heathen rituals included ingesting blood. You may know that ingesting blood was mentioned in Leviticus. It's in the Law of Moses. But it was actually forbidden way before Moses was even born. In fact, almost a thousand years before Moses, the, the ban on blood came the same day that God allowed people to eat meat. All the way back in Genesis 9, when Noah and his family disembarked, dis, disembarked from the ark? <laughs> anyway, when they got off the ark, God told him every living thing, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So, so this particular instruction to the Gentiles, it could be argued, was actually a, a pre-Mosaic prohibition. And so obeying it doesn't count as being constrained by the law. And I'm going to tell you that I, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that this is talk, talked about other than here in Acts 15, let alone relaxed, okay? So, so I'm inclined to think that most traditional scholars are right. We, we shouldn't eat bloody meat. We shouldn't drink blood. And, and this, this is not referring to rare steak, by the way. I want to make sure we all know that. No, I mean, it's, it's a serious thing. This is not because anywhere in the developed world um, that animals are slaughtered for food, the standard practice is, is to bleed them, in case you're not aware of that. Um, by the way, I saw a picture where a guy is handing a burger to a lady, and, and their conversation goes something like this. You don't have to worry. This hamburger is plant-based. Wow, that's great. Do you know what it's made from? He says, well, probably cow. It was a meat processing plant. 
So anyway, I, I like the joke. I don't care what you think. <laughs> don't. It was a dad joke, totally. I'm a dad four times over. It's all good. Um, don't purposely ingest blood. I think you'll be fine. Okay? So I don't think you have to worry about the microscopic you know, amount of blood that's probably in meat. That's clearly not what God is referring to. He's talking about intentionally ingesting blood. But what about sexual immorality? Let's revisit our, our passage from last week that we used for this one. Paul says, you may be sure of this. I want you to, to, to hear the certainty. You may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Sexual immorality, no inheritance. You know, someone might say, but, but what if they're a Christian? My sins are forgiven, aren't they? Well, yes, Christian sins are forgiven. But if we're knowingly and unrepentantly living in sin, have we truly experienced a new birth? I'm leaving that question up to you. I don't think that Christians can forever live in known unrepentant sin. I think the Holy Spirit convicts us of those things eventually. It doesn't mean we're going to be sinless when we, you know, when we die. We're not going to be sinless until we die. Hope you understand that because it's part of who we are. We have the, the carnal nature, the sinful flesh. The, the nearly, let's call it the nearly inspired, the new international version refers to it as the flesh nature or the sinful nature. We have that. We're going to have that, okay? You're never going to be completely sinless until you die. And if we sin, remember this, Scripture says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. And then the very next chapter, he says, I tell you this so that you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, he has Christ as his advocate. Sorry, I kind of went off the notes here, but, or the manuscript, but I, I want you to understand this, okay? If you're a Christian, your sins are forgiven. But if you're a Christian, you are also going to be turning away from sin throughout the course of your life. It will be a process, a progress, maybe I should say. But it's going to happen. Anyone who is justified will be sanctified. Okay, coming back to this. Um, I want you to hang with me. Clearly, clearly the Bible teaches that sexual immorality is contradictory to the Christian life. And it's not just this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That means you're being made pure and holy like Christ. He says, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the heathens, the Gentiles who do not know God. And, and Paul goes on to say uh, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. God takes this seriously. He takes holiness seriously. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Christians shouldn't even hang out 
with other professing Christians who are living in unrepentant sexual sin, among other sins. That's not the only one. He lists a bunch. He says, But I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. In the next chapter, Christians are told, flee from sexual immorality. You know, there's a very few things that Scripture tells us to flee from. Usually it says, you know, something to, to turn away from, stand up. It says, run away from sexual immorality. Very few things. Also talks about youthful lusts. Flee youthful lusts. Very similar. Talks about fleeing idolatry. Very few things we're told to flee from. But that's not all, friends. <laughs> this train of thought continues on throughout the New Testament. Galatians 5.19 says sexual immorality is a fruit of the flesh. Revelation 21 refers to the sexually immoral as those who are plunged into the lake of fire and who cannot enter the celestial kingdom. God, God is really serious about this. Y'all need to understand that this isn't Mark. This is Holy Scripture. Okay? You guys at home. This isn't my opinion. This is Scripture. So, with regard to sexual immorality, this admonition is binding for all Christians at all times. It, it, it's repeated throughout the New Testament in, in no uncertain terms. There's lots of references there. I think I put them in the bulletin insert too. Um, Anyway, so, so here's the thing. Why are they mentioned together like this then? Why, why is not ingesting blood, and why is not eating meat sacrificed to idols, and why is sexual immorality, why is that all lumped together if there are different uh, levels of danger, so to speak? And I'm going to tell you that this, this is Mark's opinion. Now this is Mark. Okay, this is my opinion. Personally, I think it's because all four of these things were connected to the Gentiles' religion from before they were Christians. I think that's why they list them together. Idols, blood, and temple prostitution were all part of their culture and their pagan worship. So the church was saying, don't do these rituals anymore. Okay, This isn't what Christians do. It was probably a shock to some of the Gentiles to learn that you can't sanctify sexual immorality. They remember, they were trying to make it a part of worship as though they were sanctifying it. It doesn't work that way. This is the, one of the, the reasons I struggle so much when I hear a phrase like, like gay church or gay Christian. Are there Christians who struggle with homosexuality? Absolutely, like every other sin. Absolutely. Do homosexual people need Jesus? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 6 lumps in men who practice homosexuality along with heterosexuals who commit uh, sexual immorality. It lumps them in. He says, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then what does the next verse say? Verse 11 says, and you were some of these things. Some of y'all did this. But you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That means you don't have to be that way. So to try to sanctify a sin instead of sanctifying a sinner is spitting in the face of God.
went way off the nose. But would we have a church for adulterers only? You know? Or have a church, an alcoholics church? Listen to me. Every church should be a church where alcoholics can come and learn about Jesus and meet him. And a church where homosexuals can come and where heterosexually immoral people can come. And where, but when they come, they need to say, this is wrong and I need to depart from it. And they need to be taught it from the pulpit. It shouldn't be where you can come, oh, just everybody come in because, you know what? It, 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 it. Oh. <laughs> I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. God loves us where we are, but He does not accept us as we are. He can only accept us as Jesus is. He cannot accept our sins. They must be covered by the blood of Christ. And if we are repentant, that is a sign that our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. But if we come in and we say, I don't have to change. This is who I am. And God made me this way. And, and I, you know, I lust after that woman. And I lie every day. And I do all the... Guess what? Guess what? We're showing our true colors. All right, last, 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 off the, last off the cuff thing. It might be 1 Timothy. It might be 2 Timothy. I think it's 2 Timothy 2. But it's two sides of a coin. It says, first, the Lord knows those who are His. And then secondly, whoever claims the name of the Lord must depart from iniquity. So there you go. If you're a Christian, your life should be in a Godward trajectory. You should not be living in unrepentant sin. Now I've got to find my place. Give me a second. Hmm. Wow, it's way up there. Okay, here we go. All right. You can't sanctify sexual immorality. It's always wrong. So, if the Gentiles, they're saying, if you Gentiles will put these things aside, then in the words of the church in Jerusalem, you would do well. Okay. And that makes sense, sort of. But something still doesn't sit right with us, especially us people in, I think, my generation and older generations. Because some commands being moral issues for everyone for all time, like abstaining from sex outside of marriage, and other commands being, yeah, don't ask, don't tell, <laughs> you know, like eating meat that's been offered to an idol. It really bugs us because it sounds like relativism, at least a little bit, right? I mean, we know what to do with absolute truths, but what are we to do with the more subjective issues, like, like these non-binding concessions? What are we supposed to do with this? How do we handle these? In this particular case, regarding eating meat that may have been offered to an idol or not, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, go ahead and eat it. Unless, in the same passage, someone tells you that it was offered to an idol, in which case, don't eat it for their sake. Why? Why does it matter what someone else thinks about what we do if it's not necessarily wrong in itself? Don't we have Christian freedom? You know, to, in, in what we say and in what we do, if it's not explicitly a sin in Scripture? I know it took a while to get to the subject of, of the title, but we're finally there. 
okay? It's all right. It took us a while, but it was important, I think, for us to wrestle with the idea of absolute commands versus concessions for other people's sake. Because now, now we get to struggle with how to apply this in our own context as Christians. So let me ask you a question. Are there certain issues, certain areas in the Christian life that the Word of God does not specifically mention? I'm not talking about generalities, but specifics. Like whether a Christian should watch R-rated movies, okay? Are there some things that Scripture doesn't tell us yay or nay on? Can I get an audible answer? Yes, absolutely. There There are some challenges in the Christian life the Bible does not specifically mention. Although applications can be made from the Word that will affect different Christians in different ways. So here's another question then. Do we have freedom in Christ in areas where the Word does not give clear, specific guidance? Yes. For example, you're not going to find thou shalt not watch R-rated movies in the Bible, right? But you might find some Christians that feel completely free to watch Braveheart while others might be uncomfortable letting their teenagers watch Harry Potter. You know, some Christians have no problem with having a couple of drinks after dinner with their friends, and other Christians won't touch alcohol. You know, some some Christians believe God wants us to eat kosher, and others eat it seces, right? I mean, I'm going to say the answer to this question is yes, but with an asterisk, okay? We have freedom in Christ to either abstain from or enjoy the things in this life that are not inherently sinful, provided this freedom is exercised responsibly. If God in His infinite wisdom has has neither commanded nor prohibited something in His Word, then we should be free, I believe, from from compulsion to either do it or not do it according to the dictates of our spirit-led conscience. And if every Christian on earth thought the same way about everything, this would be really easy to do. But that's not how it works. We don't agree on what's acceptable for Christians. In fact, there are at least as many opinions as there are denominations, maybe as many opinions as there are individuals. So how how can Christians responsibly live out of our freedom in Christ? And these are the last few minutes. We're just going to try to answer that question by looking at two different places in Scripture. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians 8. Okay, Beginning in verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, which again, that's part of the letter we just read in Acts 15, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as, as indeed there are many gods, with a little g, and many lords, with a little l, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And what, what, what he's saying here, is that we don't care about idols because only God is the true God. And everything is really His, including meat that's offered to idols. And this fits in with that quote from chapter 10 that we read earlier, where Paul quotes the earth as the Lord's and everything therein. So so we need to recognize that everything is the Lord's. And so something being offered to an idol doesn't make it any less belonging to God. And it's not just everything, but also every one of us belongs to God. See, recognizing this is a good baseline because when we try 
When we try to determine the rightness or the wrongness of something, it needs to be spelled out in the Word or else we're trying to be God. Does that make sense? If the Word doesn't give us a specific yay or nay on something and we try to to say this is a yay or nay and impose it on everyone else, apart from the Word, are we not trying to be God? Anyway, one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. See, this is key. Paul is saying, we know there's nothing to these idols. You know, they're just boogeymen. They're not real. We know this, but not everyone is at the same place. He says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. That last sentence there is kind of to underscore the point that really there's nothing inherently wrong, intrinsically wrong, with eating meat that was offered to an idol or or, or eating any other food that God created. But, Paul points out, to some people it is wrong because their conscience being weak tells them that they are doing something wrong if they eat it. So Christians, we must recognize, we must realize consciences may differ. Consciences may differ between sincere believers about what is right or wrong for them to do. And the reason that's so important is in the next few verses. Paul continues, But take care that this right of yours, meaning this right to eat whatever you want, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols? In other words, if he sees you doing something that he thinks is wrong, then won't he be tempted to do something that violates his conscience? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. We can kick around the word destroyed and ask, well, is that hyperbole? Listen, The safest way to deal with this situation then for you and for your fellow believer is to respect your brother's conscience. When Paul says, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, what he's saying is that your knowledge, that idols aren't really gods, might let you eat this meat without your, your conscience bothering you at all. That's your freedom, but it might mess with somebody else's head. It might be a problem for another believer. So let's put it in a different context. Let's say, let's say you know that the Bible doesn't specifically mention gambling, okay? And you think it's fun to buy a scratch-off ticket every once in a while, right? But let's say you have a Christian brother or sister that's there with you at 7-Eleven, and and you know they have a gambling problem. Or, Or maybe you just always thought, they always thought gambling was sinful because that's how they interpret the Scriptures. Maybe that's just how they brought up, whatever. You can argue that you have the freedom to buy a ticket right then and there because the Bible doesn't specifically call it a sin. But Paul would say that's the wrong thing to do. And instead, you should not exercise your own rights, your own freedom, for the sake of another person that it might harm. He says, rather, that by sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you're sinning against Christ. In fact, he goes so far as to say, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Y'all, that's a really 
sacrificial attitude. I, I, to give up meat before you'd hurt your brother's conscience. I mean, Paul, have you ever been to Hutchins? I mean, like seriously, that, that's a sacrifice. But no, that's how important it ought to be to us too, that we refuse to cause our brother to stumble. Scripture is pretty clear that, that violating our conscience is sinful. And so if we, in our freedom, lead someone else to violate their own conscience, we're not only sinning, we're helping them to sin. Now, you might be wondering, so, 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 so then how is this freedom on my part? Here's why. Because you have the freedom to do as Jesus did and lay down your own rights for the sake of your brother or sister in Christ. You have that freedom. That's pretty awesome. You have the freedom to be like Jesus. Let's go to Romans 14. This is the other passage. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. I think that's a funny phrase. <laughs> the weak per- <laughs> It's like that old comedian thing. You know, hey, how many of you guys are vegetarians? Raise your hand. No, well, they're just too weak to raise their hand, you know? It's a, but anyway, so he says, the weak person eats only vegetables. So, so this is also about dietary restrictions here, but it's a different situation. He gives another example further down. By the way, Dottie read that earlier, and I want to commend you because I know you hate it when I skip sections of Scripture, <laughs> but you went from, from 7 to 12. Thank you for that. Um, and you see, I was trying not to make you stumble. I didn't know you were reading this morning. Um, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. I like this word welcome, okay? Because it means, the Greek word welcome means to bring someone unto oneself. It's almost like an embrace, like the, like the word embraces you. To receive someone. The word calls each of us to Receive your brother as the Lord has received you in Christ Jesus. Now remember, this is not the case if that alleged brother is living a lifestyle of blatant, unrepentant sin, because in that case, we might be required to practice church discipline, as 1 Corinthians 5 tells us to do, okay? But in cases of opinion that are due to interpretation or conscience issues, receive them as Christ has received you. For, Paul says in the next verse, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. Why? Because the Lord's able to make him stand. I like how Paul, a lot of times he feels free to just express himself in a rhetorical manner that's just super sarcastic. <laughs> uh, read Galatians 5 if you really want to, the, the full treatment of that, but... Um, Paul just, he, he's like, look, who are you to pass judgment on somebody else's servant? They're not your servant. Who are you? Remember what we said earlier, everyone and everything belongs ultimately to God, right? We must reject temptation to judge our brother based on our own perspective. He's, he is God's servant just like we are. That's not to say we can't disagree, okay? And it's not to say that we can't have discussions about why we disagree. But we are not to judge in the sense of passing judgment on other believers who are trying to worship God out of the dictates of their own conscience. You know, Paul gives a, 
Uh, there are examples in the following verses of people who still felt like they ought to celebrate Jewish holidays and, and specific feasts and, and other such things. I want us, let's put this in a denominational context for just a moment. If a brother or sister in Christ thinks that, that it'd be wrong for them to dance, or they shouldn't use instruments in worship, or, or if, they, if they're one of those people that feels led to obey the Old Testament dietary laws, not, not to be saved, they understand it's not for salvation, but just because they feel like they should, that's between them and God. That's fine. And how we feel about those things, that's between us and God. We must not let non-salvific issues separate us from our faithful brethren in Christ. Last one. We're going to skip down from verse 4 to verse 13. (laughs) Um, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Does that sound familiar? Paul was talking about that earlier. I know, he says, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, remember here in context, he's not saying that nothing is a sin. That's not what he's saying. He's referring to foods specifically. But here's the punchline. I want you to listen carefully. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So, so let's not judge them, nor flaunt anything in front of somebody that might lead them to want to judge us because our Christian freedom, that, that's not about doing whatever we want. It's about being free to do whatever He wants. Friends, remember to walk in love. That's what we're called to do. Sometimes it means making concessions for the sake of others, just like the Gentiles were asked to do for for the sake of their Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, And I think this is a lot to ponder in one morning, so I'm just going to put the cherry on top. This is is from Galatians 5, okay? Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Guys, Christ, the freest of the free of all, Christ used his freedom to serve us in love. We ought to follow in his footsteps. Amen? All right. That that can begin today. If you have not gone through the process of what Scripture commands us to do, which is to profess our faith, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and be baptized, the word tells us the word baptized means immersed or dunked into water. Um, If you haven't done those things, you have the opportunity today to make that commitment to Christ. Then the Word says, if if you have done those things, what are we to do? We're we're to obey Christ. We're to walk faithfully with Him. If you are like, well, you know what? I have gone through that. I've, I've confessed and been immersed, but I haven't really been walking with Jesus. Listen, you can make that decision today to walk with Jesus. If you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you have the power to walk with Christ.